Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello, and uh, and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Richard Kalensch. Richard is a master's level chartered physiotherapist with over 20 years of clinical experience. His journey has seen him work in the NHL's private practice and predominantly elite sport in the UK and North America. He has worked at Crystal Palace FC, Brentford FC, Waterford FC, Wigan Athletic FC, the Montreal Impact FC, the Scottish men's national team, and he is currently head of medicine medical services at West Ham United FC. I've asked Richard on Leave Your Mark because he has served at the highest levels of performance in sport at the English Premiership League, and his knowledge and experience encompass a story worth talking about. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. So I'm interested, you know, you've you've worked for a lot of professional soccer clubs or football clubs, as uh, you call them in at your, uh, across the pond. Um, yeah. But you grew up as a growing up little boy. What was your favorite team? Uh, well, uh, I grew up in Stoke-on-Trent, which is in the uh, the middle of England, uh, Scott. Um, and my team, therefore, is Stoke City. Um, so they were recently relegated from the Premier League into the Championship. But yeah, yeah when I used to watch them, they were... Uh, yeah, more of a, a kind of a lower tier team. But yeah, they've, they've yo-yoed up and down over the last few seasons. But yeah, I've always kept an eye on them because yeah, they, they were my hometown team, Stoke City. <laughs> were, you a bit, were you a big player of football yourself, obviously? or like uh, I played at a level, Scott, um, kind of a county level, which is like the district level uh, equivalent. Um, and I guess that's where my story kind of started, really. And the fact I, uh, I broke my leg playing football in a, in a cup final. Uh, when I was uh, 18 years of age, just before I was about to do my A-levels, which is like the, the highest in the, in the UK. And funny enough, I had some physio after that. And mm. I thought, okay, well, yeah, the rehabilitation, yeah, it's going to be a long road. But I had uh, you know, some inspirational guiding me along the, the process there. And I thought, that's probably going to be my future career and the fact I can combine you know, sport with, with a passion that I had already for anatomy and physiology through my studies, really. So um, yeah, I guess, you know, one door closes and, uh, several others opened up for me really. And that's how I ended up uh, going into physiotherapy. What, what were the influences before we get into your schooling, but what were, who influenced you into a life of sport when you were young? Was that something that your parents uh, pushed you to do that you discovered uh, through school? What, what, what was your driver there? A uh, combination really, Scott. Um, I think the, the, the high school that I went to, there was a big emphasis on, on, physical education um so yeah i guess i was i was lucky from a uh, parental perspective that uh, both my parents they were they were keen sports people uh they used to play a lot of badminton 
uh, and they're very act- active in their lifestyle. So I kind of followed their lead. And my brother, who was four, well, still is four years older than me, obviously, he uh, played a lot of sport. And I guess I used to uh, kick a football round and play sport against himself and, and his friends. So I guess in terms of my own athletic development, I was playing against guys that were four years older than me and therefore four years more physically matured. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I learned the tough way, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, parents, a uh, combination of, uh, you know, playing sports against my, my brother and then, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, in terms of the sciences, you know, good, uh, good education in that front. And that's where my passion for kind of the human biology, the anatomy and physiology came from really. But, um, yeah, I guess, you know, the, the parental drive is always to make sure that the academic work was done first and then it was time to go out and, and kick football around really. So yeah, the, the academic studies were always priority, but you know, in support of that, there was always a, a good sporting uh, background, um, you know, throughout my, my childhood, really. Tell me about the relationship with your brother, four years older, obviously you, you looked up to him in some sense. Was he, was he good to you as a younger brother or did he make you work for, work for it, so to speak? Yeah, I think there was a mutual respect there, Scott, purely because I say, even though there was an age gap, I, I, I think physically and then in terms of my skill acquisition, I was, I was, relatively well uh gifted in that regard sure i had to work at things but i guess my my brother i always wanted to be him and probably vice versa so yeah there was always that uh uh drive between the two of us um i would like to say i didn't follow his fashion sense scott but yeah certainly in terms of his <laughs> uh passion for sport and, and even to the current day you know we we still cycle together we we've done several uh adapter tours which are stages of the tour de france so we cycled together and yeah that's often a, a chance for a catch up now when we get out on training rides. But yeah, we, we kind of set ourselves these challenges to do. And, you know, the, the attack, the tour can be, uh, what, 180, 90 kilometers kind of mountain stages, exactly what the, the Tour de France cyclists do. And, um, yeah, we, we've, we've done that three times now, Scott. And yeah, that's, uh, it's a great privilege to, to ride these events because 10,000, maybe up to 15,000 people now with, with recent entrants uh, get the chance to, op- uh, the opportunity to ride the, the Tour de France stages like the pros do the week later. So yeah, I guess we've driven each other on uh, throughout our lives. And yeah, that's always been, uh, yeah, my goal, I want to be him and vice versa, I'm sure. I actually had a conversation last week with, uh, I don't know if you know James Morton, but he's the physiologist. Yeah. And really, really nice conversation with him about, you know, obviously he's deep in cycling now, but worked with Liverpool for a while. And that's right. It's interesting, you know, when you, and this happened to me, so I'm kind of interested in your viewpoint, but when you're a boy and you're growing up and obviously football is a big sport in in your nation and kind of the, the heart of the nation in the sense um, and then you finally have that opportunity to work in that sport. Did, did that dream come true in a sense? And was it, was it what you expected it would be or was it, was it not, so to speak? Sure. I, I mean, I have to look back, uh, Scott. And uh, yeah, obviously when I was doing my undergraduate physiotherapy degree, I was always working towards going to work in sport. And uh, it's probably the worst thing you can say at your physiotherapy uh, university interview, by the way, because we have the NHS in in the UK. And of course, as I did, I went and worked in the NHS for three years. And uh, I have to say that's the best grounding that any physiotherapist can have uh, in terms of learning off clinicians that have been in the industry for a a long period of time. And they share the knowledge as regular in-service training. Um, but yeah, it was a case of being certainly in central London where I was working at that time, Scott. Uh, the learning curve was incredibly steep, as it is with any job. But 
obviously in central London, there were there were you know a wide uh, diversity of patient background and demographic and clinical presentations. So that that stood me in really good stead. But at the weekends, I knew that. I would volunteer my services for a, for a football team. That's how the Crystal Palace opportunity came about. So I guess, yeah, you've got to be careful of these coincidences, but maybe I put myself in that situation where, yeah, okay, it's voluntary work at the weekend, Richard, but yeah, go off and earn your stripes. And, and that's what I did working with the Youth Academy, the younger players at, at Crystal Palace. And again, more doors open further down the line in terms of them full-time opportunities in football at Brentford and then on to Watford. And yeah, ultimately... The NHS was a wonderful uh, kind of platform, launch pad, really, for, for the, the rest of my career. Um, so when I then got into full-time football, it yeah, made me realize it's a roller coaster. <laughs> the highs are high, the lows are low, and, and that roller coaster just keeps on going. You know, one season seems to roll into another. Um, but yeah, I think there's still, you know, even 20 years later, there's still that intrinsic passion whereby... Every day is different, Scott. You know, I don't know when I'm going to meet at the training ground tomorrow, what, what situations and, you know, real clinical diversity of, of presentations, um, you know, some weird and wonderful injuries and illnesses I've experienced over the years. And, yeah, there's times where, yeah, the phone's never off and there's lots of emails and there's lots of politics in, in any job nowadays. But certainly in, in, in football, you've got to manage upwards and laterally and, and manage a group of players who are becoming maybe increasingly more demanding over the years because, yeah, these guys are really well, multi-million pound asset, multi-million dollar asset. So, yeah, things have evolved an awful lot, Scott. But, yeah, you, there's still a huge sacrifice and commitment that you have to make as a practitioner to, to, to make it successful. Mm-hmm. Did you, um, I'm trying to find the words to say this, but when you were, when you were in school, when you were in the NHS and you were working towards being a physical therapist and then this sort of desire to potentially get into sport, um, came about for you, um, was, was your attraction to doing that, um, connected to your love of sport or and 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 performance or was it uh, your love of football or was it just uh, you know what what drove you that way instead of just allowing you to stay uh, a physical therapist in the NHS? Sure, yeah, good question, Scott. I think ultimately, I guess I'm a person that that cares and I have empathy. I want to help people. Uh, I guess that was the, you know I don't want to sound too cheesy and corny with that, but that, I guess that was my main driver. I've always uh, thought that you know I'm a good listener, and um, yeah, I want to help people in their lives. And I guess that's where you know it started off in the NHS with rotations through care of the elderly, respiratory intensive care, you know, all the the kind of like a junior doctor would do. So basically, Scott, um, and then yeah, the hunger was always there to work with elite sports people. Uh, and of course, you know, we're talking about different functional levels here, but it's still about quality of life. You know, whether it's the the the, the the person post hip replacement, total hip replacement, trying to get back to their activity level, or the professional footballer uh, trying to get back to ninety minutes of competitive uh, football. So, um, yeah, I've always wanted to help people along the way. Um, as I've mentioned several times, you know, I've always had this passion for the human body and the anatomy and physiology, and just trying to understand how it works, and then trying to relate that to, to function likewise. And uh, you know, if there is therefore an impairment in function, how how do we get that back uh, that person back to full capacity as quickly as possible so yeah I guess it was that combination of working in sport uh where yeah I guess I'm a bit of a a sports person that didn't quite make it Scott I guess I've always had that that kind of personality where I've always been competitive and 
I like talking to to my players and and the staff that are often former players as well to understand what drove them. And I like to read autobiographies of um, elite sports people to understand what makes them tick. And maybe as you started this conversation, you know, what were my drivers from a parental and familial perspective? I want to understand, you know, how Andre Agassi got to the top of his game. What what was behind his success or Steve Redgrave? So. I like to read books in that regard, uh, Scott, to understand the persona or the, the person behind the sporting achievement. So, um, yeah, I, 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 love, I think being at the pinnacle of, of sport is really intriguing for me in that regard. And, yeah, it, it's, it's a constantly evolving environment where, you know, I'm always being pushed to be at the top of my game as well in terms of research and academia. And, and I always want to make sure, as I do so now, you know, I go into University College London and I lecture there. I examine students and I want to share my knowledge uh, that I've acquired over the years as well, Scott. So, yeah, that, that's where my, my passions come from, I guess. That's awesome. What's, um, what does it give back to you when you, when you solve a physical um, performance issue for for one of your athletes. What does it What does it give to you? Um, I think I get a huge sense of achievement out of that, Scott. Uh, and that might come from you know the the ACL guy that's been out for a period of time, and just watching him, well, getting him into a first team squad. Let's start with that, and then watching him cross the white line and go into full blooded activity again. You know, I get a real kick out of that. Um, and I guess. You know, like with any longer-term injury and, and physiotherapist relationship, you build a rapport with that player. And that, that rapport changes when a player gets injured. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's, there's players in my current squad who I say hello to every day, I shake their hand, I might tape or strap their ankle. But, you know, there are, there are going to be injuries that happen over the course of a season in a career. And I guess that's when you really bond with a player. And there's players that I've worked with at uh, former club Scott that I keep in touch with now and I'm, I'm, I, you know, we're in the friendship category so I guess there's always that line where there's got to be a respect um, because yeah I might have to be the one that disciplines that player for turning up late or being disrespectful or not doing his exercise program so you have to you know respect where that line in the sand is Scott I guess is what I'm saying and make sure you keep that professional respect but also you've got to be a confidant for that player as well and I guess we're now talking about the psychological aspect of injury as well. Um, because, yeah, I think that's becoming ever more demanding in, in certainly in the Premier League football and, and the, the levels I've worked at in, in different countries that you're not only dealing with the physical uh, rehabilitation, but the emotional and psychological aspects of that as well, Scott. So I think you become very adept over the years at picking up you know, the, the body language or the signs and signals or the communication cues that make you realize, oh, this, this player might be struggling right now or there's issues going on behind the scenes that might make, you know, that hamstring a little bit tighter or the rehabilitation of that hamstring just a little bit slower. So, yeah, that, that, that gives me a real boost as well to know that I'm helping that person and, and you know, the, the persona behind the, the facade that you see to, to get him back to activity. You've seen the the world of performance at that level change a lot, I'm sure, over the last 20 years. What um, what do you think has been the net positive of – because when you started and probably back when I worked, there were less less people in the room, you know, and there's more people in the room now. And yes. what's what do you think is, is positive about that and what do you think sometimes – uh, is is difficult about that or, or challenging about that? Um, I'd say I think the players over the years got probably become more demanding. Um, you know, they, we're, we're providing a service. Let's not forget that. And we want to provide the best service possible in the 
quickest possible time, uh, the shortest possible time. So, yeah, we, we've got to have a very good referral network and a good multidisciplinary team around us. Uh, and, yeah, we're working with players of, I'd say, multicultural backgrounds here and, and different languages. So, yeah, that, that's a challenge. But I also think that, say, in the Premier League, um, you know, since its inception, and let's say we're talking 20-odd years back now, I think ultimately it, it's become more multicultural, but that has helped the English game, in my opinion, because, you know, these guys are phenomenal athletes nowadays. I, I firmly believe if they weren't playing Premier League football, they'd be competing at the Olympic Games for their country in, in an event or another. They're, they are incredible specimens. Our job to keep them at the p- uh, pinnacle of the game, Scott. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think the hands-on demands of the players um, and often there's, you know, there's other therapists that they want to consult as well. We, we must kind of acknowledge that as well. So often there's a team behind that player as well. So you've got to have, have a good kind of communication channel with, with those guys as well, because yeah, players want to have a soft, you know, uh, a massage of an evening or do some extra conditioning outside of the club. Then we, we've got to be understanding of when that might be happening and where and when it might be happening so that we can make sure that all the work that goes on together is facilitatory and it's not you know, taking anything away from the work that we're doing at the club. So I think professional standards have improved an awful lot in terms of the players and how they look after each other's uh, look after each other nowadays. Um, so yeah, I think it's... How have I think you... It, I would not to interrupt you, but I was interested in how you've negotiated that concept of cultural differences amongst players. Like mm. that must be one of the most um, interesting and at the same time difficult elements. Just understanding what the the background sure. of an athlete is, what they're what what how they come at a problem or or understand sure. how they solve a problem. I'm curious. Well, I think the main thing is got you remain open minded to it, and yeah, we you know you have some interesting suggestions over the years of, of different treatment techniques and uh, exercises that uh, the, the 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 therapist may have imparted onto onto a player. Um, so I always want to you know, when we do a pre-signing medical or initial assessment on a player, I want to talk to the player and understand, you know, where he's come from, um, what his belief systems are, uh, who might be involved in the background in terms of providing backup care as well. Uh, and yeah, you're open-minded to that. I think ultimately that that's a key skill, Scott, because you've got to remain, you've got to build that trust with the player. You want to allow him at the right time to see external therapists, but you've got to make sure that you maintain that locus of control uh, because yeah, we can have players going off all around the world. And certainly this, this week's an interesting one, Scott, we've got players going all around the world for international duties. And, you know, my skill then is making sure that we've got contact with all the doctors and therapists working with our players at different teams around the world right now and making sure that the players come back um, in one piece and we get a full injury report or GPS data or, any other information collected while that player's on camp with their international team, we need to have that information. So, yeah, I guess the player wants to know that myself and my team are open-minded and supportive of what the player wants to do, where he or she might want to go. Uh, and ultimately, yeah, we're, we're, we're still maintaining that, well, this is our player, he's contracted. It's different to the MLS where the league on the player in the UK, you know, West Ham United own the player or Watford FC on the player. And you have due to care to the player, but also I'm feeding back to the owner of the club predominantly Scott. So, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm giving all the relevant information to the owner and the, the head coach of the team ultimately. 
yeah, I'm still maintaining control, if that makes sense, of, of, of the player's medical care, irrespective of where he goes in the world for other treatment or surgery or, or, or working with an international uh, medical team as well. And how, how have you managed, um, you know, uh, juggling a relationship and a partnership with your wife and, and the high demands of working in, in professional in a professional sport? Uh, you know, how do you how do you make that work uh, personally? I think you try and compartmentalize it, Scott. Uh, I have a wonderfully uh, forgiving wife who, yeah, she's traveled the length and breadth of the country. Um, I think she's become a, a football fan, whereas maybe she preferred rugby before. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, she came out to Montreal for the year when I was at the Impact. Uh, and yeah, we had a wonderful life experience there. So yeah, football's given us some great experiences, Scott, don't be wrong, but it's also probably taken away quite a few Christmases and Easter's and uh, summer vacations. And yeah, I said uh, a few minutes back, you know, there's big demands and sacrifices when you want to work in the sports injury with uh, sports field with, uh, with, with elite sports people. So yeah, it's, uh, I, I try and make sure that when I leave the office, that's all my work done. And of course there's always the odd email nowadays on, on phones. There's no hiding place, but I try and make sure that when I get home, it's our time or, if there were to be a couple of days off, a weekend off, then we try and get away and get a break from it and, and just shut down from it. Otherwise, yeah, it becomes a 24-7 kind of <laughs> hamster wheel way where you never get off. So, um, yeah, uh, I, uh, you've got to make sure that, you know, as I said to Sam, my wife, when I went into football 20 years back, I said, look, there's going to be a lot of weekend work and a lot of traveling away, a lot of hotels and even with that now, Scott, you know, we, we even stay in a hotel before a home game. So you can be in a hotel three nights out of seven during any given week and, and obviously you can be traveling up and down the country and uh yeah you get nice private jets and it's not the amount of travel that i saw on the mls but there's still hotels and travel that you've got to you've got to kind of uh, go through so uh yeah yeah uh, it's, it's important to have wonderfully supportive people and, and family and close ones around you you mentioned the the montreal experience um what precipitated that you coming across the pond yeah, I'd left my previous uh, job at Watford, Scott. Uh, it was time for a change, and uh, uh, I was in communication with uh, Adam Braz, who was then um, uh, sporting director at the Impact. And uh, yeah, we we did a, a, a telephone consultation uh, interview, and I came over to Montreal in the December of 2016. It would have been uh, packed my winter clothes. Uh, <laughs> I was still freezing cold. Um, but yeah, I went to have a look at the impact uh, to, to the training facility. Um, I met uh, the then head coach and uh, yeah, I liked what I saw. Uh, and testament to the impact, you know, their training facility is, is better than some Premier League training grounds, Scott, in all honesty. Um, uh, I don't know, Mr. Saputo's uh, funded that very well and, and it's a really sympathetic and yeah, and you visited there yourself. It's a really nice environment to work in. Um, but yeah, I just got a good feel from the club and it felt like the right time to jump across the pond. And um, so Sam, my wife, uh, she was able to take a, a career break from her job. And yeah, I guess the, the pieces of the jigsaw just fell into place, really. Um, so yeah, wonderful life experience. Um, what was the best part of that experience and the toughest part of it for you? I think the toughest part... I think as you go into any culture and you've got to adapt to the different demands. So I think the biggest challenge uh, was probably the pre-season training, Scott. Uh, you've got to imagine that the pre-season training schedule in the UK is generally done in July, which is obviously 
the hottest time of year. So yeah, it reaches about 15 degrees Celsius. So you're really, <laughs> you're really going to be creative in the UK to do all those kind of temperatures. But yeah, on a serious note, you, know, you do your pre-season in the summer. Uh, and then, yeah, we rock up in Montreal, January, February time when, yeah, it could be what, minus 20 with a wind chill on top of that, minus 30. And it's like, okay, where are we training today? And there's a snowstorm coming in. Where are we going to go? So yeah, I think it was being creative with pre-season at the, the time when you needed your high-intensity training and your, your big training uh, volume. Uh, yeah, we had to be creative on where we went. And I have to say, testament to the players, um, you know, whatever surface they trained on and wherever they were and being moved about on minibuses, they they were great. They just got on with it, Scott. There was no complaining. And trust me, in the UK, that's different. Um, <laughs> players, in the, players in the UK don't like change. They just want to be on a grass pitch and yeah, they want to keep as many uh, possible factors um, static as they can. Whereas, yeah, I think looking at, the, the amount of travel in the MLS and of course there's not the private planes and the hotels are not quite as good uh, that the league provides and, and yeah that I think is the, is the biggest challenge in the MLS and, and certainly you know travelling east to west coast is one example I think the first game for the impact uh, last season uh, season before last sorry was away in San Jose so yeah that straight away is like wow so how do we deal with crossing the time zones and going from you know, the climatic conditions of Montreal at that time of year in, in March time, I think it was, to, to you know, the opposite side of the country where, where it's probably plus 20 degrees, plus 25, and playing on grass versus having trained on a synthetic pitch. So those were the challenge in terms of the uh, travel, logistics, body clocks, circadian rhythms, uh, and just getting the players to adapt to a, a, a different environment where you probably travel on the Thursday, ready for a game on the Saturday night and come back the Sunday. So... Mm-hmm. I think that that was they were the biggest challenges, uh, Scott. And the biggest enjoyment was I like to go into a club. I like a project. Um, I like to affect change. Uh, and yeah, Adam and, and the staff at the Impact gave me a, a great platform to to bring about change. Really, so uh, that was that was a model that I really enjoyed. Really, just bringing the European model, I guess, into into Montreal and trying to say, well, look, this. This is how we do it in Europe. There might be some good and bad things there or some things that are feasible and some that aren't feasible, but you know, let's try it and see what happens. And uh, you know, I was fortunate enough with um, uh, Nick and Karam and Sheehan and Laurence and the medical team to have some really great people around me and, and Scott Delaney, Mark Berman. So yeah, I worked with some great people and, and I met this guy called Scott Livingston as well and, and he was uh, <laughs> inspiration in terms of what he was telling me. So yeah, I, I met some great people in, in Montreal and I have really fond memories of it. What what is I'm curious actually from coming from the other side so to speak what is the fundamental difference as you see it or differences between how um, performance professionals in 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 Europe or in in England see um, the preparation and the coaches see the preparation of the footballer comparatively speaking to what you noticed when you came to North America what was what what struck you um, I think looking at the I'll use the terminology locker room at this stage, but uh, the changing room at Montreal was, um, yeah, I mean, we had European-based players or players that have come from, from Europe, I should say, Scott. We had uh, American players, we had South American players, and we had the local uh, Montreal-based players. So, you know, there was a real uh, mixture of approaches there um, in terms of, you know, the players' tactical and, and technical backgrounds. Um, so yeah, some players believed in going into the gym and doing some pre-activation work and were believers in recovery. Some players just wanted to go to the uh, pitch, play football and go home, Scott. 
so yeah, we I wanted to try and standardize the approach. So yeah, we made the pre-activation um, compulsory. Uh, and of course, we needed the, the backing of the head coach and the coaching staff to make that happen as well. You know, I think with, with any culture like that, it has to come from the top. And yeah, we, we, we put a, a vision and a model and a theory in place to say, right, 30 minutes before the guys go to the pitch, we'd like them in the gym to do some hip mobility or some proprioception exercises and, and the players bought into it. And that, I say, is testament to the model we wanted to put in place, Scott, but also how from above our plan was supported. So um, yeah, we, we standardized the activation side of things. Of course, in terms of the, the technical and tactical side, that was obviously already in place, I'd say. And you know, I don't think that was any different, Scott, to what I see uh, back over here in the UK. I think there's always uh, pre-briefs and debriefs and studying your opposition to make sure you're the best planned and prepared team when you cross the white line. Um, but then an area, like I say, I wanted to focus on was the recovery. I'm looking at these crazy kind of east to west plane journeys thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> how do we recover the guys coming back from San Jose if there's a midweek game at the Saputo Stadium on a Tuesday night? So uh, I sat down with my colleagues and devised the recovery protocol. And uh, then I did, I think it was three presentations in the end to the players over two or three months, Scott, to, to try and engender that culture of, look, guys, you don't just, you know, have a shower and, and kind of go home. We need to recover hard and get prepped ready for the, the session the next day or two days later. So, yeah, that, that was a slower process, but we got there in the end. Um, because, yeah, selling an ice bath to any individual is hard enough. But you, we, we tried not to force it down the throats. We kind of made, you know, some areas were compulsory, but others were made optional to get the player buy-in, I guess. And I guess within any group of individuals, you, you go for the the kind of the the ones at the top of the food chain and then that knowledge and, and that process then disseminates down through the group. Uh, and of course there are always bigger challenge with any, any group, uh, the laggards as I call them. But then, yeah, I think once you've got the, the big hitters in your group on board, then you've got to target the other areas to say, well, look, is this guy going to jump on board or, or how do we get him on board? And, you know, we, we, we got there, Scott, in the end, we got there. Um, so I think, yeah, of course, in the UK, the, the structure's been there for longer. Um, and generally, you know, of course, you know, these, these players, you're buying in multi-million pound assets. And they've been at clubs in other areas of the world where, yeah, of course, they've learned and they've brought in different methodologies. Uh, but they're generally well-drilled. I think going to Montreal, there were, there were areas we could improve. And I, I identified those within the first two or three weeks of being there, Scott. And, and then it was about putting the actual plan together to, to, to roll out those, uh, those protocols. Cool. What was your favorite restaurant in Montreal? Oh, where did we start? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say Sheer McBride. He was my, uh, I, I, we have a, a book in the UK called Time Out. And it's like, it's all the best restaurants and uh, cinemas and bars to go to. Sheer McBride was like my Time Out magazine equivalent. I would say to Sheehan, where should I go? And he would just tell me, oh, have you tried this place? Have you tried that place? So, yeah, I, I wouldn't want like to name one particular one, Scott, but yeah, as a city, uh, I think it was, uh, I just thought the range of uh, restaurants and the variety and the quality of the food was fantastic, really. Some really nice places. Probably the thing you most miss, not the temperature, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the poutine you guys have is amazing, I have to say. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to read something to you. The um, I do this with everybody. I discovered a book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born, and it's a combination of numerology and astrology. And uh, you are a Libra 5, mm -hmm. uh, and your 
purpose is to realign your perspective and your identity so that it expresses your deepest truth, not the mask you show the world. To use your many talents and great diversity to provide a service to others that will facilitate them in expressing their truth. Every one of these comes with a saying, after ecstasy, the laundry, Zen statement. Libra fives are divided between their need for the luxuries of the world and the need for truth. This is an identity crisis. If they don't discover who they are, they could spend their lifetime devoted to others. Libra fives are multi-talented, which makes clarity and single-mindedness of purpose more difficult. Restless and on the go, they can suffer from depression and fear. They long for intimacy but are afraid of it. So they seek a partner who is distant and unattainable. They may even idealize a relationship. Their fear of losing their individuality and freedom keeps them chasing dreams. The Libra Five should balance excess and perfectionism with faith. Wow. <laughs> Did it resonate with you there? Or? Yeah, there's some uh, pretty <laughs> strong messages in there, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I, I can kind of align with uh, yeah, quite a lot of that. I have to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it makes for an interesting conversation. I've I, I've re- I re- read these to each person because I found my purpose in the book. It was quite striking when I read my purpose Absolutely. statement and the saying afterwards. And about eight out of ten times, people say to me, "It's uh, it kind of gives them shivers." So. Yeah, that was uh, pretty poignant stuff there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> what what is your what is your biggest challenge in you? What what are you most challenged by in yourself? Uh, I guess I have this constant work ethic in me, Scott. I, uh, going back to what you've just described there, I, I I do find it difficult to sit still. And um, my wife Sam, you know, she'll always say this: whenever we go on holiday, I can sit on the sun lounger for about an hour. And I, I do like reading books, but I have my hour, then I'm like, I need to go for a run. I need to go to the gym. So, I think I have uh, something inside of me where I, you know I, I like to be active. Uh, don't get me wrong; I do like to sit on the sofa when I need to do so, but. Yeah, I like to exercise every day. Um, I like to push myself. I like to keep asking good questions, I think, Scott. I don't, I hope I'm not in the pestering category, but I ask good questions that people could because I do believe that the quality of my communication will help me to get better as well. So, yeah, I want to listen to people and I want to ask good questions at the right time to, so that I keep on learning. I've just got that inherent drive where I want to get better. I'm always looking at, courses or books to read or you know i i think i i'd like to go out and meet fellow professionals and understand as i was alluding to with elite athletes what makes them tick you know uh, and so yeah I, I just want to keep growing and getting better mm. what is what is what do you feel is your strength as a professional uh i'm extremely organized scott uh, and i'm diligent in my work i'm committed to what i do i don't do half measures uh, I want to make sure when I start something, I'm, I'm the classic completer finisher, Scott. You know, if I start that rehab, I want to finish it. <laughs> uh, and that's not for want of sounding like a control freak, but I want to make sure that I take the athlete from the start to the finish. Um, but I want to plan every part of that process. Uh, and I guess, you know, within that come the challenges of, right, okay, if that player comes in, you know, saying better or worse, what am I going to do? It's that classic question that you're taught as a kind of a, a junior physio, really. What are you going to do if the patient comes back tomorrow and they're way better and they really want to push on? Because that's going to change your plan. Likewise, if they come in and that Achilles tendon's a bit more sore uh, tomorrow, how do you adapt your program? So, yeah, I think that that's where, you know, I am very well planned, but yeah, I need to be a bit more adaptable and versatile at times to those ever-changing uh, environments, really. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, it comes back to the, being a good listener, a good planner, and, and being effective in my communication. What do you feel is your Achilles heel? I.e., it's a strength, but it, it bites you sometimes. I guess it's that work ethic. Yeah, I want to make sure that, and I've learned over the years, Scott, to, you know, when is the time to switch off? So, for example, this weekend, you know, the, the players, we, we play a friendly game on Thursday, Scott, and then the players have three days off. I'll find it difficult to take three days off. But I also know it'll probably be my last three days off before next March. So I find it difficult to, to say, right, guys, you know, right, I'm going to delegate this to you as the number two or the number three physio, but I need you to look after this player on Friday and this player Saturday. And yeah, I want to make sure that I'm good at delegating. Uh, I, I protect my staff. I want to make sure that my staff get their time at home and probably I need to look at myself in the mirror sometimes and say, Rich, you need to get some time at home as well. So I will be doing that this weekend, Scott Livingston. And tell me off if <laughs> you see me anywhere near a television screen on Match of the Day football because, yeah, I need to make sure I switch off this weekend. That's, that's, that's my bonus this weekend to go away with Sam and we'll just have a nice weekend in the cottage in the country and relax. What or who grounds you makes you uh, actually reflect on that sort of thing? Yeah, Sam. Sam without a shadow of a doubt. Um, yeah, I think, and I guess, you know, maybe what attracted me to Sam in the first place, she's a, she's a dermatologist, Scott. Uh, so we met working in the hospital environment. Uh, yeah, we're both, we are the complete finishers. We both work really hard. Uh, and I guess we both need to tell each other at times, right, it's time to switch off, you know, to push the laptop lid down or turn the phone off. We need a bit of our time now or let's just watch a bit of TV or go for a walk. So, yeah, Sam's the one that keeps me grounded and, and tells me when I need a break and need to switch off, absolutely. What's been the personal cost of being really good at what you do? Wow, there's a question. Uh, I guess a few gray hairs, Scott, and a few wrinkles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I mean, I, I guess my uh, – I always kind of – I like to exercise hard, Scott, because I think that's my outlet, honestly, uh, and – I'd like, I like to think that I know where my limits are, what my limitations are in terms of, yeah, I, I, I never want to overtrain. I think I know what my capacity is as a wannabe athlete. Uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, sometimes you can push yourselves you know, too hard physically and emotionally. But I like to think over the years, I've, I've found that line. I've found the level where, yeah, if I get to the, I always go to the training facility for about seven o'clock every morning, Scott, and I try and have a half an hour workout. Uh, because I think that sets me up for the day. It just helps me to clear my head, uh, get get the London traffic out of my <laughs> head from the journey in. Uh, and yeah, it gets me well planned for the day and, and clears my thought processes ready for the day ahead. So uh, yeah, sometimes I could ease off the gas a little bit more, Scott, don't be wrong. I think, um, yeah, I'd say we're in, a, we're in particularly demanding jobs. Uh, yeah, could I switch off more so or at an earlier time? Definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I'd like to think I've got the right kind of balance. Uh, you know, the work-life balance is always going to be particularly challenging in, in this kind of profession. But let's say Sam will be the one that will tell me if I'm doing a bit too much. That's good. It's good to have a partner that uh, tells you like it is sometimes. Absolutely. If you met yourself 20 years ago, you were 20 years younger and you ran into yourself at a bar, what would you say to yourself? Ah. Uh, Wow. Uh, I would say uh, keep the good people around you. Um, 
yeah, I think we, we've learned the hard way through my wife, Sam, had an illness uh, 15 years ago, Scott. And, and I guess that made us realize who the good people were around us. That's the best way of putting it. Yeah, we had some people that couldn't deal with it. Uh, and I always reflect back on our wedding day. You know, you always want the people that stick by you through thick and thin and the good and bad times to be there on your wedding day. And, uh, you know, we had a few people when it came to choosing our wedding uh, seating arrangement that, it was difficult to invite Scott because they weren't there for, for the bad times. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's about keeping good people around you, have a good team around you because they're the ones that will give you energy. They're the ones that will talk to you when, when you have an issue and, and hopefully vice versa, you're there for them when, when they need you. So, yeah, I think it's just uh, making sure that you, you've got the right, right people around you. Cool. Last question for you, my friend. When yeah. you, you, you will perish from this earth someday, hopefully not for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. How, how would you like to be remembered? Um, I think as a conscientious, um, thoughtful person who, who gave life a good shot, basically, uh, Scott, in terms of live life to the full when I could. Uh, but yeah, knuckle down and, and work damn hard uh, to achieve everything that, that I did. Um, so yeah, if I can take those memories to, to the grave, uh, I'll be, I'll be very happy with that. Awesome. It has been a, a very fortunate time to spend some time with you, sir. I hope we uh, bounce into each other at a pub one day soon and have a beer Absolutely. and, and fish uh, and chips. And yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe uh, a poutine. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Poutine and chips. I was, uh, yeah. I, was, I miss the poutine. I really do. <laughs> Well, Thank uh, thanks for the opportunity, Scott. I appreciate your time and uh, yeah, pleasure. Be well, man. Take care. Will do. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.